Before we get into our particular passage, I want to just do a quick look back, or rather a big picture look at where we have been and where we find ourselves now. And so thinking back, chapters 1 through 5 tell us what God has accomplished for us in the gospel, uh, namely justification. And chapters 6 through 8 tell us what God will accomplish, is accomplishing in us through the gospel. So chapters 1 through 5, what God has accomplished for us, and chapters 6 to 8, what God will accomplish in us. And in the words of one commentator, uh, looking at chapters 6 through 8, saying that these chapters tell us how to experience the gospel. They tell, they tell us how the gospel is dynamite. Dynamite that produces deep and massive changes in our actual character and behavior as those in Christ. Well, today we come to chapter 7. Uh, if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, you should find that on page 943. <clears throat> and the big, uh, the big question that Paul uh, puts before us as we go into chapter 7 is this. What is the role of the law in the life of the Christian? What is the role of God's law in the life of the Christian? Now, clearly, the law is Paul's focus here. He references the law 31 times in chapter 7. It's just 25 verses. He references the law 31 times. Now, something that that may strike you, you may have already noticed that up to this point, Paul's references to the law, they've been pretty negative in tone. But he isn't dismissing the law, not at all. In fact, here in chapter 7, he's challenging us. He challenges us to have a proper understanding of the law. He wants us to understand as believers, as those in Christ, our new relationship with the law. Uh, Here in this first half of chapter 7, Paul addresses two common errors in relation to the law. The errors of legalism and license. That brings us uh, to our passage, uh, Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll hear God's word. Lord God, once again, we do uh, come before you. We come to you uh, this morning, and we ask that you would speak to us now, that you would speak to us collectively, that you would speak to us individually, that you would open us to your word and your word to us, uh, that you would help us to understand the gift of your law in light of the gift of your gospel. And it's in Jesus we pray. Amen. And so Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Hear the word of God. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released 
from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, Sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. This is the Word of God. So again, two common errors in relation to the law. Legalism and license. Paul addresses the error of legalism in verses 1 to 6 and the error of license in verses 7 to 13. But this morning, we're going to actually look at them in reverse order. So we're going to start in the second part of our passage, uh, starting with the error of license, uh, verses 7 to 13. And what do I mean by license? Well, those who struggle with license basically live as if they don't have to keep any law, any rules, because, I mean, they're loved by Jesus, and Jesus is all about love, and so we should just follow our hearts, right? Those who live by license, they might also be called relativists, or to use the big theological term from a week or two ago, antinomians, basically meaning anti-law, But what what they do is they dismiss the law, believing that since now they're they're under grace, then, hey, God's law, we're not under law. It doesn't doesn't matter very much. In fact, those who live by license often blame the law for their problems. I mean, it's just too restrictive. And, And so they reject it, trying to rid themselves of any 
obligation to its demands. And so here in verses 7 to 13, Paul explains that the law isn't the problem. The problem is indwelling sin. And further, the law, well, it's good. And so take, take a look with me again uh, at these verses. Uh, picking back up verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. It it lies dormant. I was once alive, and what he means here is alive by his own estimation, his own view of himself, self-righteous, so not alive spiritually. But Paul writes, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, Sin came alive, sin awoke, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. And so the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so did that which is good, then did it, did it bring death to me? By no means. It was sin Sin producing death in me through what is good. And why? In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. That through the commandment it might become hideous and repulsive to me beyond measure. Now, I know we've skipped ahead to the, the second part of, of, of our passage, but, but remember that Paul's references to the law prior to this paragraph, that again, they have been pretty negative in tone. I mean, even in our passage today, just back in verse 5, uh, saying that the law arouses sinful passions. And so some might charge that the law is sin, that it's not good. But here Paul declares, no, the law is good. In fact, the law is so good, it is God's gracious way of revealing our sins to us. Okay, so how does that work? How how does the law reveal our sins? Well, three ways we see here. Uh, The law defines sin, verse 7. The law aggravates sin, verse 8. The law convicts of sin. Verse 9. And so first, the law defines sin. Paul writes, verse 7, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. He gives an example. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Okay, well, I I remember in my own life when... uh, had an experience a bit like this. Seven years old, first grade, Mrs. Bennett's class. It was the last week of school, and on this one particular day, Mrs. Bennett said, okay, by the end of the day, everyone needs to finish this workbook. So I reached under my desk, I pulled out my workbook, and 
whoa, I had a long way to go. So I looked at my friend Jason, Jason Swazowski, sitting right next to me, and I said, hey, Jason, have you finished the workbook? And he's like, yeah. Can I borrow yours? He's like, sure. So I go, get on the floor so I can spread out. Got Jason's workbook spread here, my workbook spread here, and I'm just caught copying left and right, left and right, everything that Jason has. And I'm going to roll. Now, occasionally I would get to something that had been marked wrong in his workbook, and of course, I tried to figure out the right answer at that point. But after a few moments, all of a sudden I realized Ms. Bennett had walked over. And I looked up and I said, oh, hey, Ms. Bennett. And she's like, Kipper, what are you doing? And I said, oh, well, you said you wanted our workbooks completed by the end of the day, and, and I'm really way behind. But Jason, he's finished his. He said I could borrow it. And so I'm just copying everything so that I could get done. And she chuckled and she set me straight. But the point is this. You see, I would not have known what it is to cheat if the law of Mrs. Bennett had not said, you shall not cheat. And so the law defines sin for us. It tells us what it is. Well, second, the law aggravates sin. Verse 8, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment. Sin, seizing an opportunity, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dormant. And so what is happening here, what Paul is getting at, is that our sin, it takes God's good command and produces in us the desire to do what God says not to do. Uh, Biblical scholar uh, John Stott says it well. He says that sin establishes within us a base or a a foothold. And if you look back at that verse, at at verse 8, and actually Paul uses the word twice, but the word opportunity, seizing an opportunity, uh, that word in the original language refers to a military base of operations. And so Stott says that sin establishes a base by means of the commandment, which provokes us. Then he goes on to say, This provocative power of the law is a matter of everyday experience. For ever since Adam and Eve, human beings have always been enticed by forbidden fruit. This strange phenomenon is called contra-suggestibility. So there's your big word for the day. Contra-suggestibility. The propensity to react negatively to any directive. So, I know you can't relate to this, uh, but let's just imagine that you're walking in a public place, maybe a public park, and you see that sign that says, keep off the grass. Who are they to tell me to keep off the grass? This is public. In fact, my tax dollars are paying for this. What do you do? Nobody's looking. You put your foot. You get back. You've been moved to break the law. Okay, now, now sometimes there's consequences to this. So, I, you know, thinking back to when I was a, a kid, I wasn't a very bright kid because this probably happened around the same time, but I remember my dad, and uh, thank goodness cars don't have this anymore, but you remember the cigarette lighters in the car? I mean, they were so cool. You push them in, you wait, you anticipate, pop, and pull them out and they glow. Well, once upon a time, my dad smoked, and so I saw that thing in and out regularly. And my dad warned me, do not ever touch this. 
But I was fascinated by that orange glow. And so one day he stepped out of the car, punched it, pulled it out, got close, kind of hot, touched it. Consequences. It burned the Hades out of my finger. And so what we see is that the law aggravates sin. It, it stirs up what's already in us. And third, the law convicts of sin. Verse 9. I was once alive. Again, Paul is just, uh, it's in his own estimation that he's uh, referencing. I, w- I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. Sin awoke, was there, but then it woke up and I died. And so what he's basically saying is that when the the commandment finally came home, when it finally hit him, it struck him to the heart. And Paul finally realized that he was not in right standing before God, before coming to Christ. He realized that he was guilty He was guilty before God, that his heart was rebellious against God, that he was condemned under the law and dead, spiritually dead, because of sin. He realized that he had been deceived, that sin had blinded him. He finally understood that the law could not save him, because he could never, as hard as he tried, he could never fully keep it. The law. But even more, he realized he needed a Savior. And that in fact, that meant he needed the law. He needed the law to point him to that Savior. He needed the law to drive him to Jesus. And so by God's grace, the law convicts us. It breaks us, and it drives us to Jesus. And so think about it this way. I found this to be a helpful illustration for me. And, and, and if you think about the law as a mirror, okay? A mirror. So the, the purpose of a mirror is to show you your face. And if your face is dirty, to show you that it's dirty, The purpose of a mirror is not to wash your face. The purpose of a mirror is to drive the person who sees the dirt to the soap and water that cleans. And so similarly, the purpose of the law is to drive the person who sees their sin to drive that person to Jesus who washes sin away. Paul doesn't dismiss the law but instead shows how much we need it and why. Okay, so now let's move to the first part of our passage. Now back to the top. Let's, uh, let's take a look at the other error, uh, the error of legalism, uh, verses 1 to 6. And what do, I, what do I mean by legalism? Well, you might also call it moralism. Uh, but those who, who struggle with legalism uh, basically live as if Jesus loves them as long as they're keeping the rules. In fact, he loves them more 
the more rules they keep, the better grades that they get. Whether those rules or however you look at it, doing good, being a good person, especially when compared to other people. Okay, legalists live as if they're still under law, as if they're still married to the law. And thus they're in bondage to getting it right all the time. Now, I want to make clear that all of us tend towards one of these two errors. Now, for me, I can relate to this one. This is the, the tendency I have, the error that I tend towards, legalism. And it's crippling. It's suffocating. It's paralyzing. You know, to live under law is to live on that exhausting, anxiety provoking treadmill, effort after effort after effort, getting nowhere. The spiritual treadmill of of what you think you ought to be or do, and often imposing the same impossible standards on others. So here in verses 1 to 6, Paul explains that the law no longer has authority over us that we've died to and have been released from the law and that we now belong to Christ. So let's, uh, let's reread those verses again. And as I reread them, you may have noticed, but, but pay attention to the, the fact that, that Paul first gives us an illustration. And then he applies that to our lives. So verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, that is the old self, the unregenerate, uh, unregenerate, the the, uh, being in Adam, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in us to bear fruit for death. But now, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Okay, so the marriage illustration, it can be summarized in five words. Till death do us part. Heard those words before? Till death do us part. You see, these first three verses remind us that in the the legally binding relationship of marriage, that husband and wife are only bound by law as long as they both shall live. When one dies, they are no longer married. Now, you you may scratch your head for a moment uh, when moving from the illustration, the illustrative part down into verses uh, 4 to 6, where Paul's 
gives us the application, and that's because the analogy isn't completely parallel, but the principle is the same. And it's this, that through our death in Christ, we are no longer married to the law, but now married to Christ. Now fully, legally, completely, lovingly bound to, in union with Jesus. And so what does it mean then, that verse 4, that you've died to the law? Verse 6, that you've been released from the law. Well, when someone is married to an oppressive spouse, how is that spouse often referred to? The old ball and chain, right? Someone is a prisoner shackled to an iron ball. Well, that iron ball is the law. And Paul says, verse 6, that we've now died to that which held us captive. It's a beautiful sound. Because it's the music of the gospel. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And what's the next line? That famous hymn, the next line? No condemnation now I dread. That's what it means. That's what it means that you've died to and been released from the law. It means that you're no longer under its authority. No longer under the condemnation of the law. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you are under law, your chief motivation was fear. Because you had to measure up. You had to work hard, but but you realized you couldn't measure up to be acceptable to God. But it was fear that was driving you, that was motivating you. But now, now that you are married to Christ, now that you belong to Jesus, you're under grace. You're under grace because He has measured up. Perfectly keeping the law on our behalf. And through faith in Him, we are clothed in His righteousness, and we are filled with His Spirit. And it's a whole new way of life, and we'll get to that more in chapter 8. But no longer do you have to fear being rejected by God, because now, now you are accepted in Christ. And that frees you now. It frees you to grow, to grow in a life that is no longer motivated by fear, but now is is motivated by love and joy and gratitude and expectation. And it also frees you to grow in a life of grace and godliness. Because you see, as Christians, we don't discard God's moral law, nor are we slaves to it. But we do have a new relationship with the law. A new relationship with the law. God's law 
is, is given to us so that we can know how life works best. How, how we're meant to relate to God and to one another. I mean, think about it. When your heart is set on God, when you are living in that, that sweet spot for a moment of being centered in Christ, resting in His goodness and grace, isn't life just so much better? Those moments... And you know, if you think about the world, if you think about every person, if we all honored one another, honored our marriages, honored our parents, honored everybody we see created in the image of God, if there was no theft, no murder, no lying or deceit, wouldn't life be wonderful? So think about life for a moment. Think about life as a dance. And think of God's law as the dance steps that lead everyone to move together in perfect harmony. So some of the more popular TV shows over the past 15 years or so, uh, they've been the the reality competition shows uh, like Dancing with the Stars. And So think about Dancing with the Stars for a moment. Now, thinking of Dancing with the Stars, I mean, maybe like me, you've not actually seen it that much, but but you pretty much know how it works. So there's several contestants. They're all learning difficult, challenging, and beautiful dances. And they're judged every time they dance. They're judged every time they perform. And you see, in in that sense, they're dancing under law. You know, it's stressful, anxiety-provoking. You know, we we get those behind-the-scene looks, and we see how hard it is on them. Stressful. They're they're all seeking, what, approval and acceptance. And in the end, they all fail, except one. And when the winner is finally announced, they dance a celebratory dance. A dance they've already done before. But whereas before they danced for acceptance, now, now they're dancing from acceptance. Whereas before they danced under law, now they're dancing under grace. Well, when it comes to the, the dance steps of God's law, there was and has only ever been one winner. The rest of us lose. But the good news, the good news of the gospel is that when we put our faith in the one, Jesus, then his perfect keeping of the dance steps of life. It's credited to us. And we're now invited to continue learning to dance with Him. Not as those under law, but as those under grace. You see, the the gospel frees us to learn the dance steps of God's law under grace. The, The gospel frees us to live from acceptance rather than for acceptance because now we are accepted already in Christ 
And what God wants us to hear, what Paul wants us to know is this. That brothers and sisters, know. Know that you belong to another. To Him who has been raised from the dead. So that we might bear fruit for God. Let's pray. Oh Lord. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken, that you have given us your word, which continually drives us back to you. We pray now that you would help us to understand your law and your grace more fully, that we may learn to live, to dance, as you have created and called us to do. Amen.